1: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm pleased to have with me today Dr. Ari Glass to tell us all about his book titled Practicing Peace, Conflict Management in Southeast Asia and South America, published in 2022 from Oxford University Press. As the title suggests, this is a comparative book that looks at the two regions of Southeast Asia and South America to understand why they have some interesting conflict dynamics going on in each region, and how those are managed by regional organizations, by officials, and I found this book really drew together kind of a lot of different ways of thinking about diplomacy and peace and conflict and politics, um, both between regions that are maybe less studied, especially less studied in comparison, and also different threads of this theoretical practice um, brought together in a really interesting way. So I found this book to be a fascinating lens into these two places and how they work on this diplomatic level, and a lot of kind of things to think about more broadly as well. So Ari, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
0: No, wonderful. Thanks so much for the invitation. Uh, Pleasure to be here.
1: Before we get into the book, would you mind introducing yourself a bit and explaining why you decided to write it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Ari Glass. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science and at the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at uh, Northern Illinois University outside of Chicago. Um, I completed my Ph.D. in 2017 at the University of Toronto, and that's where the book project came into being. It it started as my uh, my dissertation there. Um, In terms of why I wrote the book, uh, beyond it being the the dissertation for the degree here, um, it grew from some research assistant work that I was doing with um, Matthew Hoffman at Toronto, who would later become my supervisor. Um, And with him, I was engaging with some practice theoretical work from Emmanuel Adler at Toronto and Vincent Puglio and others, uh, and reading a lot about treaty making and multilateralism. Um, And this got me interested in questions of regional organizations in the OAS, the African Union, and especially ASEAN. Um, an organization that seemed to do things a little bit differently than others, be less formal, engage in less treaty making, etc., and for there, I just kind of went down a rabbit hole, uh, thinking and learning about the ASEAN way, debates over ASEAN's effects on regional peace and uh, and so on, and um, confronted the puzzle that would end up animating the interest of the book itself, which in brief, and I'll return to it, is that despite what a lot of the literature on long peace across regions and in Southeast Asia uh, presents, the reality of regional relations in Southeast Asia is really messy. Um, less clear cut, less of a binary between conflict and cooperation, uh, and more of kind of a a messy coexistence of each. Um, So what I was seeing um, was kind of really interesting dynamics, real sustained cooperation, institution building, but existing alongside uh, real and pervasive levels of disputes and even violence between states. And then then reading uh, through international practices uh, around diplomacy and organizations seemed to offer some insight. So I was kind of hooked on the empirical side, looking at puzzling dynamics of peace and and thinking about organizational practices uh, and and how diplomats might try to manage their affairs. So that's where kind of the the impulse behind the book uh, began.
1: Thank you for giving us that context. I, of course, have to ask you more about these puzzles, right? We always love puzzles. So what is the two-part puzzle of the book?
0: Yeah, so I've I started kind of hinting at this already, but as you noted, it's it's there's kind of a two-fold interest here, kind of a two-fold puzzle. Everyone loves a good puzzle. Um, on the one hand, so as I've noted, um, a lot of the literature, um, at least in international relations anyway, tends to paint a kind of uh, dichotomous, uh, stark portrait of peace, there's long peace or there's not. Um, And in the Southeast Asia case, it's there's a long peace, the establishment of ASEAN has fundamentally changed regional relations and made them more peaceful and and got rid of conflict um, in kind of very stark terms. Um, Similar accounts in South America, uh, most of them start with the end of the Chaco War in in 1935 or the end of the Second World War. Um, But we see a kind of... uh, a portrait of change, that something fundamental has changed, and there's a period of kind of lasting and important peace. And I agree, that's really interesting. It's puzzling. Um, There's a lack of large-scale violence that's definitely puzzling to myself as an IR scholar and a lot of other IR scholars, in large part because in neither of those regional case uh, does this dynamic seem to be driven by some of the crucial factors that we see elsewhere, or at least that we see kind of within the European experience, experiences, uh, formalized institutions that lock in good behaviors, democratic regimes, economic interdependence, all that sort of good stuff seems absent in the, uh, the foundations and continuance of long peace in these regions. Um, so as I show in the book, I think a, a wide array of potential explanations don't immediately seem to fit these cases. Um, Alice Ba's really excellent 2009 book on ASEAN makes this clear. You know, the institutionalists, in particular, she argues, have a really hard time explaining the longevity and the effects of ASEAN. It just the the, the region doesn't match our expectations there. And I think a lot of the same can be said about the South American case, too. So that's one side of the, the, the puzzle. We've got this kind of this puzzling piece or a long piece where we might not expect to see it. Um, but then, as I noted, kind of digging a little bit more deeply, um, I think the puzzle's actually a little bit muddier, a little murkier, messier. Because, yes, there's a long piece in that if we think about war alone, uh, we don't see it. Um, but there's still a lot of violence below that threshold, uh, that threshold of war. And in the book I present this in a fair amount of detail, noting uh, there's some 78 instances of the use of force in Southeast Asia from uh, 46 to 2010, at least 20 among ASEAN members, something, ASEAN literature tends to kind of overlook, uh, and, and a similar thirty nine instances of use of force in South uh, in South American states. Um, so across this period of long peace, um, I think we still see kind of puzzlingly pervasive levels of militarized disputes that that just exist below this threshold. And then adding another layer of interest here um, is that at the same time we see really sustained and I think kind of truly important effects um, at institutionalizing interstate relations. So the establishment of organizations, the expansion of their their membership and their mandates, all the things that they do, and that this is kind of real and profound. So, so taken together, I see a kind of interesting coexistence between community building and conflict, and that's really the animating interest here, um, something I describe in the book as a conflictual piece. Um, the coexistence of real sustained effort at managing and institutionalizing interstate regional relations, again, building organizations, expanding mandates, and so on. And this all occurring alongside pervasive levels of disputes and even violence among regional members. So that's the two-part puzzle. Um, and the move I make in the book is to start from, again, this kind of messy reality um, and ask, how can we account for this? How can we make sense of this dynamic, which which is a, I try to show is something that's often overlooked in, in some accounts of regional peace or regional long peace um, and and kind of begin to get into the argument a little, I think that we ought to look at who is the one who's actually practicing peace, who are the communities, the diplomats involved in doing peace, and to look at how both kind of the day-to-day doing of regionalism unfolds, and then how moments of kind of acute crises are confronted, uh, understood, and managed, or as the the title of the book gets at, how peace itself is actually practiced. So that's that's kind of where the puzzle and the animating interest here uh, comes from.
1: I think this is, uh, I must admit, I'm slightly jealous of the phrase conflictual peace. It's just a very good phrase um, to describe this puzzle that you've just helped us understand. Um, That does seem to be absent from the literature, right? The idea of, okay, well, there's a lot of peace going on. Hang on. Why are all these armies running around? Um, Why are all these border clashes happening? How does that make sense of it? So. Given this focus on how peace is actually practiced, the diplomats, the officials doing this, um, now that we understand the puzzle you're looking at, can you tell us a bit about the theoretical framework that you think explains it?
0: Yeah, so to, I would say, you know, to, to understand this, to make sense of it, uh, maybe less so in the kind of uh, positivist uh causal explanation sense, but to make sense of what I see as this puzzling dynamic of coexistence of conflict and cooperation, again, to account for how peace itself is practiced. um, What I do in the book is develop a kind of analytical framework that I think is useful to giving us some insight. And it's centered on two key concepts. The first being that well-established notion of a, a, a community of practice, or in this case, a community of diplomatic practice, Um, and then investigating the particular habitual dispositions of that community, Um, the habitual, the practical aspects of diplomacy and governance, things that are taken as kind of a matter of course by members of that community. Um, And as I noted, kind of rather than a strict causal explanation, the the approach I think I argue anyways allows us to understand or see how how peace is practiced and in doing so at least shed some light on how we might understand this messy coexistence of cooperation and conflict. Um, and to do so, it, it kind of the framework compels us to center our analysis or attention on the experiences and the perspectives of the practitioners of peace themselves. Um, state officials, organizational officials, those people who are tasked with managing regional affairs, again, from managing kind of acute instances of crisis to the the more mundane, broader pursuit of regionalism uh, within and outside of organizations. And so to get at that kind of analysis and to, to build up what I think is a useful framework for inquiry, Um, I start in the book by surveying what we, you know, broadly in IR, know about peace and conflict and how it's managed. Um, And I show that a lot of the potential accounts that are sort of out there do indeed give us insight. Um, You know, they've addressed this piece, they've explored uh, this puzzle, rather, they've explored elements of peace and cooperation in important ways, um, by centering our attention on dynamics of state power, of uh, the role of institutions, of questions of culture, a term I don't adopt myself in the book, but but questions of ideas and norms. And I argue that these, these offer us some insight, but not enough. They take us some of the way, but not all the way, and certainly not in isolation. Um, And rather, I think that we can build a kind of productive dialogue between them if we adopt a kind of interpretive sensibility to see how and why these sorts of dynamics, power institutions, norms may influence the contours of regionalism and of conflict management in each case. Um, so I start from this move basically arguing that a lot of what we, we see in, in the literature in IR gives us a, a useful first step, that power plays a role. States and states people have varied competencies or types of authority that consequentially influence interactions and the scope of diplomacy as it unfolds, that institutions are important sites where this happens, largely because it's, it's, it's the site of actually managing conflict through social learning and other, other dynamics, and that norms uh, are important. Um, but but they're important in ways that um, are often overlooked or, you know, I'll come back to this later, but, but have been overlooked in the literature until kind of more recent years. Um, and on this point, um, Amitavacharya is probably the kind of the, the biggest name in this literature, at least in terms of the norms of ASEAN and the ASEAN way. Um, but in his really excellent canonical book on ASEAN, on and I'll just quote kind of loosely here, um, he notes that um, there's, and this is quoting him, that there's considerable room for doubt whether the norms of the so-called ASIAN way have actually been upheld in practice. Um, and that's kind of precisely the, the point of interest of the book and the framework I want to advance by focusing on communities of practice and their habitual dispositions to zero in, drawing on this interpretive sensibility to examine what is done, what is upheld in practice and with what effect. So again, the framework starts with this: that power institutions and norms are likely to matter, but that we ought to zero in on how how they matter in practice for those tasked with managing conflict or, or practicing peace. And then the second step uh, in in exploring how they might matter is to draw on that that huge and, and you know exponentially growing literature on practices, um, as well as related concepts around internalized norms and habits and a few other kind of conceptual focal points. Um, but these, these arguments that tell us that a lot of what people do uh, alone in communities, states themselves, occurs rather unthinkingly, unreflexively, or as a matter of course. And that when this occurs, we, these dynamics are of tremendous importance, that the, the, the practical, taken for granted qualities of social life are really crucial to how we confront and make sense of the world. And therefore, they ought to be to our kind of uh, our sensibilities and analysts as well. So, so in, in doing so, um, I, I want to argue that combining this focus on power, institutions, norms, with the, the kind of lessons of literature and practice and habit, um, we can end up with a really useful framework to investigate, to query uh, the dynamics of the puzzle here, to make sense of community relations and, and potentially this conflictual piece. Um, so, again, it's, I, I kind of bring this together to center on a concept that I term habitual dispositions, um, the kind of the, the core concept um, kind of analytical focal point I adopt in the book. Um, and I define habitual dispositions as discrete sets of processual or substantive qualities of relations that are understood and enacted uh, largely as a matter of course by communities of practice. So, so said another way, that the kind of cognitive foundations and then the relatively automatic behaviors that are known to be normal, to be natural, to be effective for particular and largely discrete groups of, uh, of officials like those operating within and around ASEAN or within a kind of wider network of organizations in South America. Um, and I argue in the book in, in chapter two that these are likely to matter, that a lot of literature points us in the direction that these types of dynamics are, are probably important. If if we're going to explain the kind of messy reality of the conflictual uh, conflictual peace, so that, that, that's the framework I advance early in the book to how to how to begin to explore these dynamics.
1: And then, fascinatingly, given how difficult it can be to get people to explain what they think is normal to someone who doesn't know what kind of well, what do you normally how do you normally deal with these things? Um, it often can be difficult for people to articulate kind of the sh- cognitive shortcuts, the frames of reference they have but you've gone and interviewed a whole bunch of people and figured out a lot of these different pieces. What does the habitual disposition look like in these places? So I'd love to kind of move through the book in the order that you talk about them. And so looking at Southeast Asia first, um, you discuss in the book, the seven aspects of the habitual dispositions you found uncovered there. Um, can you take us through them?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, as you know, I make kind of two investigations in, in the book across the two empirical chapters, one focused on Southeast Asia, one on South America, and then a concluding chapter that brings the two into kind of uh, the implicit comparisons into more kind of explicit focus. Um, and in each of those those two empirical chapters, I first show that there is indeed some multifaceted habitual disposition as I've defined it. Um, there's a regional community of diplomatic practice. Uh, it's engaged in conflict management. It matters. And its behavior, its thinking is informed by a particular habitual disposition. So on the one hand, the first move is let's uh, I'll kind of unearth and show that this this, this these dynamics exist. Um, and then I aim to explore the effects or, or trace and show how it affects the course of diplomacy and governance and, and conflict management and so on. Um, so as you know, yeah, I, I argue that there's um, a diplomatic community of practice that exists around ASEAN. Um, not. Uh, around that organization, and that it, it has a seven-part habitual disposition. Um, and this takes a, lar- a large part of the book to um, to uncover and articulate. Um, and as you note, it's drawn on uh, conversations, uh, detailed interviews with practitioners um, around ASEAN and those who uh, kind of confront the organization as external others as well, um, something that we can come back to as well on questions of methodology. Um, but I won't go in, into too much detail about how it's uncovered here, but rather what I see. So I see in ASEAN regionalism and diplomacy seven inherent qualities that together form a discrete and I think really particular habitual disposition that matters. Um, collectively, or said another way, collectively, this is what regional officials here tend to think from Rather than about when they face acute crises or when they're going through the kind of mundane, banal day-to-day process of regionalism more generally, um, some of the qualities I'm about to turn to may uh, the audience or readers might, might might know them as norms to use that terminology. But as I argue and advance, uh, kind of defend in the book in in um, a fair amount of detail, I think they're better understood as variable qualities. of a a dispositional trait. Um, Processual and substantive elements that diplomats and state officials uh, working within uh, ASEAN of all kinds tend to assume and know when they pursue their work. Um, And that given the kind of ontological priority that I assert these things have, this kind of background dynamic, that they influence how regional solutions to challenges are are conceived and pursued in ways that a kind of account of them as norms wouldn't necessarily speak to. Okay, so what are these traits? So um, I see three related to process or processual uh, attributes here. What's done as a matter of course. Um, And I outline these in some detail in the book. So the first is a particular practice of consensus, um, something that I term prior consensus. Um, A particular practice of knowing and doing consensus-seeking behaviors, something that occurs largely outside or alongside um, the kind of formal institutional channels and interactions of ASEAN. And with a particular sensibility of what competent practice or or, or the way to do this actually means. Um, I contrast this kind of vividly in the book with the experience in particular of European diplomats. Um, working in Jakarta alongside ASEAN, who use the same term consensus, but mean and understand it as something fundamentally different. So so the norm or the principle of consensus here is better understood as a particular process or practice in the ASEAN sense. Um, the second is related to this, and this is the turn in ASEAN towards informal dialogue, uh, interpersonal, often ad hoc, dynamics outside of formal prescribed channels um, that are outlined kind of starkly in a lot of asean's kind of myriad documents and details but that asean has this kind of this this preference or disposition towards informality and dialogue and then the third is related to this um, and as I articulated it's a it's a privilege of process over substance um, a kind of faith in the process of dialogue itself in talk um, you know ASEAN adopts this the, the critique of being a talk a talk shop um, uh, and kind of spins that as a positive that the talk itself is is the interest, uh, returning to the table, um, a, a term that comes up a lot in, in interviews with ASEAN practitioners is as being really important. So in the book, I contrast this again to how many ASEAN uh, dialogue partners, uh, officials from states involved formally with ASEAN, but from outside the region. Um, I, I contrast how ASEAN practitioners view this privileging of process over substance with, with what these dialogue partners do, um, who see very different ideas of what competent diplomatic process actually is. Um, so particular kind of practices or processes uh, across these uh, dynamics. And then in terms of the substance or the content of, of the habitual disposition here, um, what officials seem to be thinking from rather than about, again, there's kind of three core elements. And the first is thinking from a particular um, a view of non-interference. Um, this is a term or again a norm, a principle in ASEAN documents and in the rhetoric you get from ASEAN practitioners um, that that comes up all the time. They argue it's the only game in town is a a, a phrase that comes up a a fair amount of times in my interviews but again what interference actually means or how it's understood and enacted in practice is not given from a recognition of the term or the existence of the norm. Um, It's something that's not sacrosanct in the words uh, of one of the officials I quote in the book um, but rather a kind of calibrated practice Based on again community-specific understandings of the competent enactment of this uh, of this term, this this norm, um, or how even to inter- interfere appropriately. Um, so again, a particular understanding of non-interference, um, and then uh, fourthly, um, one of the components here is an inherent recognition of the equality among member states, that all member states um, are kind of understood and approached as as equals in this informal dialogue or in questions of non-interference or competent interference. And then lastly, uh, sixthly, rather, the the importance of face-saving. Um, that dialogue happens primarily or even exclusively within the organization and that officials tend to shield others from external critique in, in particular ways. And the, the final attribute, the seventh habitual element here, um, is a proclivity or inclination um Uh, Knowing that it's possible and likely towards informal, peaceful dispute settlement, something that kind of blurs the analytical divide um, I advance in the book between process and content. But this kind of inherent faith that the way that ASEAN goes about solving problems works and can be done in a kind of peaceful and mutually beneficial way. So I see these seven qualities as basically the foundations for regionalism and undergirding how conflict management here is uh, is approached, uh, how officials play their game. Again, to quote the language that came from a number of interviewees, and that'll be common uh, in, in a lot of practice theoretical treatments uh, as well.
1: So then with those seven pieces, how do we see that in practice? How does that well, as the title says, practice peace and manage these conflicts?
0: Well, really briefly, I think kind of at a fundamental level, they shape what's on and off of the table as regional officials here struggle to respond to challenges and pursue the kind of, again, mundane aspects of regionalism in the day to day. I think that they mean that ASEAN tends to do things in prescribed, often slow, often ad hoc ways. Um and In doing so, as I argue in the book, I think they also lead to a sort of toleration of limited forms of violence between members. Um, so as I show in some detail in the book, there's a kind of business-as-usual-like attitude towards some forms of violence between members. There's, there's the belief that this is going to be a recurrent reality or possibility, um, but that there are certain ways, there's a faith that there are certain ways that have been established by this community of practice um, to manage them, if, if not necessarily resolve them, to, but to manage them, to confront them uh, and limit them. Um, as a kind of broader answer to this question, um, and as I show in the book, it it, it really it, the, the answer would center on how how more specifically, they delimit the scope of regionalism and, and kind of shape the the uh, response to acute crises. And in the book, I demonstrate this um, most starkly anyways by kind of case within case of the ASEAN response to the Briha Vihir uh, conflict in 2008 and 2011 in particular, um, and how the escalation of violence between two formal ASEAN members, Thailand and Cambodia, um, was actively managed, um, and how this seven-part habitual disposition Uh, shaped what was on the table, what was off the table, and how ASEAN attempted to, to, again, not resolve necessarily, but manage the conflict. Um, And this was a major conflict. Um, Again, I think it's a kind of a a clear indication of the puzzle that animates the book, that these flares of violence that displaced as many as 100,000 people that saw the use of tanks and artillery and cluster munitions, uh, kind of real sustained use of force between formal ASEAN members, occurred at the time that the ASEAN Charter was coming into force, that the the, the blueprint documents for the ASEAN community were being negotiated, um, and, and and this kind of this case exists alongside real deepening of the ASEAN regional project. Um, so I investigate how it was managed, um, and make the argument. Unsurprisingly, I suppose that it was managed in and through the qualities of the habitual disposition that it that unearthed. So we see a series of informal uh, ad hoc ministerial meetings, largely led by Indonesia, a kind of authoritative, powerful actor uh, within the organization, that it was kept within the institutional context of ASEAN uh, as an institutional framework, and that what was done through these meetings and how it was approached and designed was really guided by particular practices uh, around particular understandings of ASEAN's norms and principles, particular understandings of consensus, as I noted, or what interference or non-interference means in practice. Um, And I detail this in in the book that um, these interactions, I think, may have have these these kind of ASEAN crisis management practices may have limited the violence at the time, but they didn't in and of themselves actually resolve them. Um, they may have actually made possible kind of the continued flares in violence, to use the term that came from some of the uh, the, the folks in attendance here. The flares in violence along the border, even as ASEAN's attempts at mediation or potential resolution were ongoing. Um, but I I think it's clear that they they mattered, um, and we can see they mattered in in part because two potential Options for responding to the crisis were off the table right from the onset. So there's no suggestion of using force to compel or, or coerce some kind of regional solution, um, and no, neither was there a move to make use of the formal mechanisms that are provided for this sort of thing within ASEAN's kind of core institutional documents, including the uh, the, the charter. Um, instead we see that ASEAN set about a series of attempts to manage the conflict that, that signaled a kind of tolerance of violence and a, and a recourse to um, particular means to respond to them. Um, and as a bit of a side, I think it's it's really interesting talking to people who are involved uh, in this case in this dialogue about why they did what they did and didn't do what they what they didn't do. Um, so I often asked people who were involved in, in the dialogue in 2011 um, why there was no kind of recourse to formal mechanisms, like uh, there's a high charter, sorry, a high council uh, mechanism uh, in, in ASEAN that, that's never been used. Um, and, and one attendee told me in a very kind of ASEAN way, um, well, and I'll quote here that, that that's never worked. Um, and then I pushed a little further and and she admitted here, that's never worked because no one's really wanted to try it. And I think that's really telling um, that there, there are formal mechanisms that exist on paper that could be adopted, but there are kind of given ways of responding to challenges and crises um, uh, that we can uncover in the, in the practices. And that's really what's done. That's what people want to try. That's what people kind of turn to as conflict uh, uh, management practices in the region.
1: Hmm. I think that's a really interesting question, kind of why do you do what you do and not do what you don't do? Um, And this very much helps us understand what might from the outside be, hang on, but this thing exists. Why hasn't it been used, right? We now have seven pieces to understand um, what this looks like in practice. So now that we have a little bit at least of a handle on it um, in Southeast Asia, I'd like to turn to South America. Regional relations and institutions look rather different in this region um can you tell us a bit about kind of what we're looking at institutionally here why it's different and what the habitual dispositions are there
0: yeah so as as you noted in south south america and in, in the in the case there the the regional relations themselves the practices and and the organizations are indeed they're, they're very different um so here kind of at the broadest level, um, again, as I detail in the book, we see kind of a patchwork of organizations rather than in the Southeast Asian case, kind of ASEAN as a core hub of broader multilateral practices. So we've got MERCOSUR, the OAS, the, the kind of the, the now late UNASUR, uh, and a whole host of other kind of overlapping, often competing organizations that exist as sites for regionalism and governance um, within South America. And then, of course, kind of the wider hemisphere and other subsets of, uh, of regions uh, within it. Um, but again, as in the ASEAN case, I think across this kind of institutional milieu and thinking about the different, uh, regional practitioners from the South American States, we see a few commonalities in how regionalism or regionalisms are pursued and, and conflicts and crises attempted to be managed. Um, so I think again, we see another kind of admittedly very different, but another kind of clear case there is a habitual disposition among South American practice uh, practitioners, a set of qualities that seems to uh, inform how they confront and respond to challenges, crises of all, all kinds. Um, so in, in the book, um, I articulate kind of four key qualities here, and I'll, I'll be even... Quicker than in the South, uh, Southeast Asian case, um, but a few elements of process. Um, in the South American case, very much contrary to the uh, Southeast Asian case, um, regional practitioners tend to privilege or uphold this kind of an automatic turn to a rules-based orientation to solving challenges. Um, uh, and, and they do so, secondly, through a formality and dialogue and an institutionalization of the, the means of conflict management. And then relatedly, thirdly here, this also produces a turn to external mediation as kind of a matter of course, um, finding arbiters and mediators of disputes um, outside of the kind of the belligerents or those involved in a crisis. And substantively, it kind of the key component here is a, is a similar notion around a regional familiarity. Um, that all states are part of sometimes a perhaps dysfunctional, but still a kind of familial and exclusive community. And this kind of knowing shapes their intentions, their interactions, and how these things are perceived. Um, so this this I see again kind of four qualities: this privileging of a rules-based orientation, formality and dialogue, the turn to external mediation, and this regional familiarity. As again, elements have habitual or dispositional qualities uh, of regional relations here. And as you noted, this looks really, really different or rather different than the the, uh, the case of Southeast Asia, um, clearly erring towards formality versus informality, seeking mediation from the outside rather than keeping things contained to the region and so on. Um, on, on the component of the question as to why these qualities um, exist or are pervasive in South American diplomacy or maybe thinking about their origins, um, that's something I touch on in the book, but not kind of a central feature of the analysis, the kind of historical emergence um, of these qualities and their reification, I think, over time through institutionalized interaction. Um, on the one hand, I think the, the the fact that we've got myriad institutions and organizations, this menu of overlapping organizations uh, in the region, um, is in one part um, a response to uh, American authority or hegemony, uh, an attempt to contest... Um, kind of varied manifestations of of American uh, power. So organizations and their mandates kind of have emerged and changed over time, I think reflecting variation in this interest um, uh, among major states, Brazil in particular, but we see kind of more organizations, but organizations that often end up doing things rather similarly. Um, And across them, I think there's some key qualities that seem salient in how officials in the region tend to pursue their interests at the regional level and attempt to come together to respond to regional challenges. Um, And again, as you noted, it's it's rather different than we see in Southeast Asia.
1: So let's compare them now that we have a sense of what they're both doing. And there are already some clear differences, but also some similarities. So can you take us through kind of the top similarities and differences between them?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So in, in the book, I think it's it's kind of implicit, but I come back to it in the empirical chapters and then really take this on in the conclusion, because I think there's a few really important similarities that begin to get at kind of the contribution of the book itself. So at a kind of foundational level, the kind of key similarity that I unearth is that each diplomatic community of practice that I explore has some distinct set of qualities that inform at a very foundational and important level how they go about managing regional affairs and responding to challenges, how they practice peace, right? There's a particular brand style approach that we can uncover in each of these cases. So that's kind of a core similarity. Uh, In addition to that, and I think kind of really interestingly, um, is another similarity that members of each of these communities of practice, they assert, they tell you quite vividly, um, that what they do is the only game in town. They have a hard time fathoming other approaches um, as possible, um, as productive or efficient. In each case, I show that practitioners believe in the, uh, the, the effectiveness of their particular um, brand of diplomacy or their particular habitual dispositions. In the book, I term this a kind of quality of the robustness of these habits. Um and I explore a little bit as to where this comes from. And in both cases, it's very similar. I show that both practitioners present or understand themselves as vulnerable, um, uh, vulnerable to weak, uh, larger external states or powers. They tend to present themselves as weak states doing what is needed to pursue uh, and preserve their interests. Uh, one South American diplomat put it as, we need to do what we, we can do to feel safe and comfortable. Um, and in both cases, that's the kind of language, the sense that that I, that I get in talking to people, that there's kind of one game in town, and it's what we've got to do because we're, uh, we need to be safe, we need to be comfortable. Um, and again, the Southeast Asian uh, officials say much the same, that their ways are needed, they're required, it's a necessity, it's just what we do, and we have to be doing it in this way. So in this sense, I think there's some really important similarities. Um, There are discrete sets of of knowing and doing in each community that are adopted and a kind of faith that they're important, they're natural, they're normal, and they're effective. Um, But as we've explored and and you've hinted at, there's also, of course, kind of crucial differences in what this actually looks like, what these habitual dispositions uh, are comprised of in terms of both the, the process and the content of these dynamics. Um, So as I've described, kind of in and around ASEAN, that Southeast Asian diplomatic community, interstate relations are understood and they're enacted through this particular seven-part habitual disposition. Practitioners, they engage in distinctive processes of prior consensus. They privilege informality and dialogue uh, and in their actions. They tend towards privileging process over kind of concrete, substantive outcomes, and they tend towards a kind of continuation of dialogue over those kind of the, the realization of discrete outcomes and, and so on. Um, and as I show in a lot of detail in chapter four, these ways of knowing, these ways of doing are very much at odds with practitioners who exist alongside, but not within that community. So ASEAN's dialogue partners, they're not normal, they're not natural, effective uh, diplomatic practices in the eyes and the minds of these kinds of officials who are external to the regional community. And of course, they're at odds as well with the features of the habits and practices that we can see in South America. So there, as I've said, the South uh, South American uh, uh, diplomatic community, as we just explored, practitioners here, they tend to confront and respond challenges in and through that four-part habitual disposition. uh, Something that rests on given understandings of regional familiarity, ascribes a particularized approach to this rules-based or formalized dialogue in regional relations. And from that foundational sets of qualities, Practitioners here tend to engage in dis- a kind of distinctive recourse to formal external mediation and the uh, arbitration of disputes. Uh, we see this in the cinema conflict and others um, that, that looks very, very different than how conflicts, potentially similar conflicts, uh, are understood and responded to in the Southeast Asian case. So really, I think that the the rather distinct orientations towards action across both of the two regional communities that I explore, and that they've led to distinct means of regional conflict management and distinct ways that officials attempt to pursue regionalism more generally. Um, and again, I think you know, the, 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 the key difference here is that in Southeast Asia, we see this kind of informality that's in stark contrast to the more kind of legalistic impulses, the, the turn to formality and dialogue that seem to characterize um, the relations of South American states. Um, in, in the book's two empirical chapters, as I noted, I kind of present and hint at this and then bring it into a kind of more direct comparison in the uh, in the conclusion uh, where, where I explored in a little bit more detail. Um, So again, there are some similarities, there's habits, there's practices, habitual dispositions, these things exist. Uh, They matter and they matter for regional practitioners for very similar ways, but what they're comprised of or what they look like varies widely. And I think a kind of final and really interesting similarity is is worth noting. um, And that's despite variation in what efficient, effective, normal, natural diplomatic practice and conflict management actually look like in each regional community, members of each community similarly attest to the effects. They understand them to work in very similar ways. Um, And I mean this on kind of two levels. So in speaking to regional practitioners across both cases, um, all tend to recognize and articulate the peacefulness of their region. They will tell you that what happens in their region is good. It's peaceful. Um, It's often presented as uniquely so. Often interviewees um, in both Southeast Asia, excuse me, and in South America, Like to draw comparisons to others, to to the quote unquote Middle East or parts of Africa or uh, in doing some interviews in 2014-15, questions around Brexit and the challenges of European unity and so on. And they argue that our region is better, it's more peaceful, it does things in a more efficient and effective way than do these other cases. Um, And that's kind of a commonality. And similarly, they each in each case, practitioners attribute that supposed peacefulness and even uniquely peaceful quality to their particular style or way or brand of diplomacy. This notion that what we do is best, it's needed, but it also works best. Um, and, and interestingly, I think in my interviews, I often prompted some kind of critical reflection on this notion that was expressed kind of unproblematically, like it, it's a given to a lot of interviewees that the region is peaceful or uniquely peaceful. And we know why it's because of the way we go about doing things, which is distinct and important. So I would, I would prompt some reflection on this and, and, and articulate the notion, not necessarily in this terms, but the notion of a conflictual peace um, that we did see kind of lingering uh, territorial disputes, distrust, and so on. And often. The, the the response to me was kind of formulaic across both contexts, that, yes, um, we have some issues here. Yeah, there's no war. We still have some conflict or we still have some distrust. But, and that but was really important, but we have ways of dealing with it that work. And in each case, I kind of found the same formulation that, yes, there might be kind of limitations to our piece now that I've been pushed on it, but we have recourse. We know how to manage it. Um, we know how to handle it kind of best. Um, so yes, there's lingering disputes, or again flares of violence was the uh, the term a couple of Southeast Asian practitioners put to me. There's flares of violence, or there's tensions, there's distrust, um, but the way that we the ways that we have to manage them work, um, and I think I think that's kind of a, a key similarity here. So in briefest terms, a core similarity is that members of each community understand their habitual dispositions to work and to work well. Um, a great quote that I, that I use in the book a, a couple of times, I think, comes from a Southeast Asian official who argued that the kind of qualities that I see as habitual and practical here are, quote, a necessity that works most effectively, um, end quote there. It's the only game in town, and thankfully, it's a it's a good one. It's something we have to do, but of course, it's something that works well. So again, I think in each community we have kind of this basic, habitual, practical qualities of how they manage affairs. They look very different, but they're similarly assumed to work and work well in each case.
1: Do they work? <laughs> Are <laughs> um, they successful in keeping the peace?
0: Yeah, I think yeah. Great question. Obviously, the follow-on there. Um, so I think that while practitioners in each case attest to to the fact that they work to their effects. Um, that they work um, I think that they have they have limits and I present this in in the book in some detail so f- first um, as I already articulated they, they they don't speak necessarily to kind of the underlying exogenous ways that that flares and violence lingering distrust um, uh, can kind of recur so for for officials and practitioners in both communities um, as I noted they recognize that there remains, Distrust is, is the term that was used a lot. Um, and as I explore in the book, I also think that they they foster or make possible a kind of tolerance of limited levels of violence. Um, Regional practitioners tend to know or understand that violence is a possibility in ways that seem sort of unfathomable to um, diplomatic practitioners external to each region, to uh, North American practitioners um, who I interviewed alongside South American practitioners or to extra regional officials from Europe or elsewhere um, working alongside ASEAN and Jakarta. Um, there's a there's a businesses like usual um, kind of approach to to low levels of violence that seem problematic to external observers. So, on the one sense, I, I don't think they lead to the kind of security community dynamics that we see um, elsewhere. But I do think that they that they help kind of depress or manage conflict when it arises. Um, so, yeah, more narrowly, I think that that as I show in both, I'm not gonna go into too much detail, but as I show in the kind of within case cases in the book, the way that things are managed I think has a kind of depressive effect. They, they can cool off temperatures. They can buy time, but in, in both cases, or especially in the ASEAN case, the Southeast Asian case, um, I don't think they can. They, 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 we have kind of clear evidence of them resolving conflict themselves. Indeed, it's it's in the priya Vhear conflict. It's only when Cambodia kind of gets gets so frustrated by the ASEAN approach that it had kind of acquiesced to that it breaks from the kind of set ways of doing things within this. Uh, uh, institutional context and goes to the UN and the ICJ that the issue is actually formally resolved. So I think we see kind of clear limits to the ways that peace are practiced, which again, speaks to this broader conflict of the kind of the, the continuance and the coexistence of conflict and cooperation, um, uh, so I think this kind of leads to that messy, that 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 muddy, that imperfect kind of quality of relations that I spoke about earlier. The conflictual peace itself. So, so I don't think they're they're there to necessarily stop the recurrence of tensions, of distrust, of, of even violence, and they may not be able to resolve them. But they 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 bind practitioners together in particular ways of attempting to resolve them or, or practice peace when these crises occur.
1: So aside from helping us understand these existences, I suppose, of conflictual peace in both regions, what are some of the other implications of your argument and the findings about these habitual dispositions and how they work?
0: Right. So I think I think there's a few implications that kind of come immediately from the empirical side of the investigation here. Um, and I think they could be valuable for some scholarly observers and perhaps for practitioners um, like those I was speaking to um, for the book as well. So in terms of kind of students, scholars of IR and beyond, I think a a key contribution or implication of the book, something that it underscores, is the importance of thinking about questions of war and peace or cooperation and conflict in less than binary terms, Um, exploring kind of regional or interstate relations with a foundational assumption that peace itself is a process um, and it's a process that's actively managed, It's done, and one that's done in varied ways. So one of the key, I think, conclusions of the book is that there's no singular way to manage regional affairs, let's say, or interstate affairs, or do so effectively. Um, what the actual practices of peace look like across these two cases in the global South vary widely. Um, And I think this is kind of an important if intuitive implication that speaks to a growing literature around global IR that gets us away from thinking kind of strictly along the the theories and concepts and experiences of European or or global North experiences to recognize that there's a wide array uh, of ways of thinking and knowing and doing peace. Um, And the book is at least an attempt to highlight um, some of these through the two cases there. Um, And beyond that kind of substantive point, I think there's a few implications um, that are briefly worth noting, both in terms of theory building and methodology. So on theory building, um, the book is part of, you know, the book was started quite a while ago now. So it's part of a a now increasingly rapidly growing literature that tries to marry or bridge together um, an analytical focus on norms um, with a focus on practice. And as I show in the book, and it's getting kind of harder to make this claim because this literature is getting kind of richer by the day, but these concepts have been kind of historically siloed in the IR discipline, um, at least in the last kind of 10 years or so. And now there's this huge outpouring of scholarship that thinks that we can kind of analytically, productively bridge these things together to help explain or understand important dynamics. So in the book, I look at how codified, rather abstract norms are themselves understood and enacted in practice in, in particular ways. Again, the the... Similar norms can be are understood and enacted in radically different ways across community settings, um, and I think that that's a kind of an important implication, getting us to think about the relationship between norms and practice that might extend uh, extend beyond the study as well. And on questions of method, um, you know, you raised the importance of interviewing for the book, and and there's a the book is kind of method forward. Chapter three is is, is broadly centered on um, uh, on questions of method and the conduct of interviews and so on, and something we didn't talk about. Much here, but I think some of the implications are, are thinking about ways of conducting interviews that would uncover dynamics of practice, um, and and one of the ways I did that in the book was speaking with these overlapping communities. Um, for me, this approach helped unearth the contours of diplomatic communities themselves. We could see that there were indeed communities, and then the particularities of their approaches, their practices. Um, and bring them into stark relief. Again, that officials might use the same terms, the same words, might tell the same stories, but they mean something different and they've done something different. Um, and so interviewing these kind of overlapping communities of practice was really important for my study and I think um, a potential kind of important implication to think about beyond. Um, and then lastly, I think some of the implications here potentially are with practitioners in mind. Um, in particular, the external regional practitioners who work alongside the organizations or institutions um, I explore in the book. Um, So thinking about practitioners, how they might understand and thus attempt to interact with the kinds of communities or the communities that I explore in the book. So I I think in particular, for example, about the frustrations of European Union officials uh, working with ASEAN in Jakarta. And there's a lot of frustrations articulated, um, I think often kind of humorously in the book, about just not understanding the ASEAN ways of doing things and and, uh, not being able to productively engage with the ASEAN uh, kind of institutional context, given radically different understandings of things like consensus. Um, So again, there's a kind of clear differences in what's normal, natural, effective interactions across settings, and articulating what those mean might help inform how others can approach or interact with them. so I think that's kind of an interesting potential imp- implication. So in the conclusion, for example, I contrast, I articulate, I showcase what what different practitioners said like they needed to do diplomacy better, and in Southeast South America, a lot of this was centered around greater professionalization, greater legal training um, to navigate existing institutional structures and to respond to challenges. And I contrast that with what um, South America, sorry, Southeast Asian officials uh, felt, which was largely the need to spend more time. For uh, extra regional officials to, to live and breathe ASEAN, to understand and vibe what it meant to, to, to do things in, in the kind of informal ways that ASEAN sees and knows as, uh, as effective and natural. So very different ways to approach what might be required to provide um, support or engage productively within these, uh, these diplomatic communities. So I think those are a few of the kind of implications, maybe even contributions of the studies. But I would also hope that readers might come up with their own uh, their own thoughts as to what's valuable or what can be taken away from the, the book themselves.
1: I really appreciate how in that answer you kind of gave both sort of what we might normally think of contributions sort of this is a thing that's not talked about in the literature. Here's some information about it, but also some implications that are more about kind of the process on the academic side, how we figure these things out, and that you took us a little bit um, kind of behind the scenes in how you managed to figure all of this out and put it into the book, um, which is very much in the vein of my penultimate question. In the process of researching and writing this book, is there anything or maybe one thing that comes to mind that surprised you?
0: Yeah. I, so you gave me this question in advance, and I thought a little bit about it. And, you know, in conducting, interviews uh, for the book um, with all kinds of just, you know, amazing people all around the world, you know, Washington and, and, and Jakarta um, for the book. Um, I should note that the, the, the dissertation from which it was based on also included uh, thinking about the African Union, so spending some time at the African Union in Addis Ababa as well. Um, so So there was a lot of surprises along the way. And the one thing I thought I would articulate as being um, kind of surprising and important was um, thinking about myself as a researcher and how consequential I was to obviously the conduct of the research, but to the interactions and the knowledge that I could generate or co-generate through the interviews that kind of form the bulk of the, the, the data, the empirics of the book itself. So I came at the book from what I, I, I think uh, a reasoned and reflexive interpretive foundation um, at the University of Toronto, I was working at the time with the late Leanne Fuji. So, you know, she was a great mentor and thinking very thoughtfully about how to approach interview interactions. Um, but I was still struck by just how important I, as a fallible, uh, complex human being, was to the process of, of conducting interviews and generating and engaging in the research process. Um, So I was really struck with how differently I was perceived as I interacted um, within and across settings. So as I noted, the the dissertation research took me to kind of three different settings through through Washington, D.C., and the OAS, uh, ASEAN Secretariat in Jakarta, and the African Union headquarters in Addis Ababa. Um, And I was really struck as I moved across these sites and then in return visits after the fact, um, how how remarkably different my experiences were conducting interviews um, across these settings. Now, I was the same person, of course. Um, I also felt that the interviewees had kind of a lot of salient similarities. You know, even their offices looked very similar. Flags, portraits, outdated furniture, their titles were similar, et cetera, et cetera. Their work was similar. My questions were similar. but myself, a relatively young white male, North American graduate student, and then, uh, then professor over time here, um, meant something very, very different across these settings and even within them. Um, so sometimes I was met with enthusiasm, other times boredom, sometimes skepticism or even hostility um, and trying to navigate kind of how I fit in and what the role of my positionality was in influencing the contours of research um, was really challenging and surprising. Um, even with kind of my best laid plans, mm-hmm. um, so some of this comes out in the book again. Um, you know, chapter three, I spent a fair amount of time, kind of method centric, talking about myself and and my experiences and how I understood and approached um, interviewing and so on. And some of this informs some some publications I have ongoing and that I've done after. But you know, just one of the surprises was just kind of how dynamic um, and you know, social these interactions were in, in ways that I anticipated and in ways that I, did, I didn't. Um, and I can talk about that a little bit more if we like, but um, but I really found just the role of the researcher, how you're perceived, how, um, how you perform and how that's read across settings was just so varied um, and so important to questions of access to um, to who would answer what questions or how much detail or how candid and so on. Um, uh, I found it just, you know, uh, fascinating to reflect on. And it's something I'm still doing even now, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. seven, eight years after stopping the the first round of interviews for the book still thinking about them.
1: Well, I'm glad you mentioned, um, highlighted the discussion in chapter three, because I think that that really is a contribution in and of itself in terms of helping people who are doing work like this, or maybe grad students thinking of doing work like this, to think those things through, Um, because that isn't something that's always talked about in the actual book itself. Um, So yet another reason for any listeners who are intrigued by our discussion to go pick the book up and get into all of the details um, I'd love to just finish up by asking you you you've given us a little bit of a teaser almost in that last answer um, the book is out is there anything you're working on um, or going to work on that you'd like our audience to be aware of
0: well all kinds of fun stuff if you ask me but uh <laughs> just kind of two two broad projects I'll just highlight because I think it's um they build kind of directly from the book so um so as I, as, you, as you noted, as I kind of suggested already, based on the drawing on the the, the interactions that went into the research of the book, um, I published a couple, three, I think, interesting short methods pieces, uh, two with wonderful co-authors, Professor um, Jessica Sidergo at the University of Amsterdam and Professor uh, Alicia Periski here at Northern Illinois, and then one solo, three kind of methods pieces thinking about the role of the researcher in the production of knowledge. Um advancing a, a kind of concept of active reflexivity to how we can kind of integrate and interrogate our role as researchers as we go about doing the kind of research that informed the book, thinking about and problematizing the notion that elite elite context, quote unquote, um, like the OAS, ASEAN, the, the AU, will somehow be uniform or similar in terms of the, the, the power and positionality dynamics therein, and thinking a little bit about um, how we can get away from an insider-outsider uh, binary as we approach doing interviews and thinking about um, being a kind of competent visitor, a term uh, Dr. Prisky and I uh, adopt in this piece. So I'm exploring these, these kinds of issues with a few related publications that are in, in progress right now, thinking about reflexivity in interviewing and other other work as well. Um, and then in terms of the kind of substantive side, just the, the, the one or two projects I'll flag. Um, just earlier this year, I published the first of two pieces that I'm, I'm working on with Professor Stephanie Martel at Queen's University in Canada. Um, she's a, a wonderful kind of critically minded ASEAN scholar. Um, Everyone should check out her recent uh, Stanford book on ASEAN uh, as well. Um, But in EJIR earlier this year, we published a study looking um, at not so much at dynamics of stability in ASEAN, as my book here focuses on, but more at um, dynamics of contestation and and potential change within ASEAN's diplomatic practice. Um, So we explored how questions of the quote-unquote ASEAN way, Um, what that means and how it's done is contested amongst ASEAN membership in that piece. And we've got another piece that we're working on Um, This is dispelling even the idea of anonymity, but it's under review right now. Um, And it's looking at how the ASEAN community of practice interacts with others, like those dialogue partners, and how those interactions influence ideas and identity and practice um, between these communities and and agents. Um, So my kind of ongoing work is is moving a little bit away from what's stable um, and, and potentially kind of static in diplomatic relations to querying questions of contestation and change. Um, and I'm doing that, I should note as well, with a kind of project looking at what might be changing as ASEAN is, is really struggling to respond to the 2021 coup uh, in Myanmar and the subsequent uh, violence against civilians there. So with two great doctoral students here at uh, Northern Illinois, with Siri and Tanner Bivens, um, I'm working on a project um, this summer, kind of interrogating and, and teasing out how practices may be being contested or changed um, in reaction to, uh, to that event. Uh, as well. So those are a couple what I think are really interesting projects that uh, are in, in the work as well.
1: Definitely. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, I think people will be eager to look out for them. And of course, they can pick up the book that we've been discussing titled Practicing Peace, Conflict Management in Southeast Asia and South America, published by Oxford University Press just a few months ago in 2022. Ari, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me.